Well, hello, everybody, and welcome to the next episode in my podcast series, Did It Anyway. Today is a bit of a different experience. Um, the person that I've got on the other end of the line um, is an elite, well, was, he's retired now, <laughs> but was an elite athlete. Is that fair to say, Mitch? Is that fair to say that you're retired now? Yeah, you can definitely say I'm retired. <laughs> oh, very good. <laughs> so I... Happily. Uh, <laughs> happily, yeah. So I have to frame it up to get started, really. Uh, I did say at the start of the podcast series that I'm not going to be interviewing athletes or anything like that, but I didn't know Mitch was an athlete. So we met. Uh, let me explain how we met. I, in my ripe old age of 39, thought it was an amazing idea to go back and play really high-level mixed netball at a local stadium, you know, Division Two rubbish. Anyway, and doing that at uh, my ripe old age, I three weeks into my illustrious netball career uh, returning, I snapped my Achilles because clearly my body was not quite in the best nick as it needed to be. And I didn't get surgery on that initially. And so that was about eight or nine weeks in, I realised that, hang on, this is not healing here. And I got a recommendation from a friend of mine who... Um, said, you got to go see this guy, Mitch. And so I went and saw Dr. Mitch Anderson, who's at North Melbourne. He's got a clinic at North Melbourne and visited him. And his words were very, look, very technical. When he took my boot off, he said, that's stuffed. <laughs> He's like, that's stuffed, mate. You got to get an operation. And I went, oh, great. Here we go. So we started the journey. And now I'm, I'm with him every couple of weeks and he's fixing up my foot after I've had my surgery. So that's how we met. But I noticed all these pictures on his wall. Of him, I didn't realise it was, they were all pictures of him, by the way, um, competing. Um, and I asked him the question, did you do Ironmans? What's the deal? And so he, he mentioned just a couple of things in a very humble way. And so I put him in the Google machine when I got home and realised that uh, this bloke um, has achieved ridiculous amounts, um, both in as a professional athlete, um, doing Ironmans all over the world, including the Hawaii Ironman, I think eight times. Is that right, Mitch? Yep, eight times, and um, I'll, we'll talk a bit more about that as we go. So um, an elite athlete, a humble elite athlete, I must say, because then when I actually responded to him and said, hey, I didn't realise I was with cycling royalty, <laughs> he didn't even respond. He was a bit embarrassed. So, um, I, but, but he said something that really interested me. He mentioned a little bit about his training regime in preparation for one of his races, um, and it got me thinking, hey, the determination that he had to achieve was something that I wanted to share. And then he actually mentioned to me about some other challenges that he had in his life that I think would be amazing to share as well. So to give you a bit of the the, the rap sheet, and then I'll let you talk, Mitch. Um, so eight-time Hawaii Ironman competitor, was either 10th or 11th as your best place, 30-time um, Ironman finisher. He rode with Shane Crawford across the country when Shane Crawford did his um, did his ride in 2013, three uh, 3,600 kilometres, and he, he's, I asked him, was that hard? And he goes, no, nah, it wasn't hard. <laughs> but, and I went, what? what? Who is this bloke? And then I did a bit more research as well, and so he's now – he broke the 12-hour world record at, with 491 kilometres of consistent riding for 12 hours and then thought, that's not enough. Clearly, I've got to do the 24-hour one. So went on like a crazy person and rode 24 hours and rode 894 kilometres, averaging a ridiculous 37 kilometres per hour. Have I got all that right, Mitch? It's madness. Yeah, that's all That's all. Um, fitting the bill of me being a nutter. <laughs> but tell us, what you, tell us a little bit about what you do now. 
So I think it's really worth um, just being give, giving people a quick summary. So uh, I started my career as a uh, well my uni my uni career um, doing physiotherapy. I then went through exercise science. I did an honours degree in science before uh, I went on to study a year and a half of a PhD. But always wanted to get into medicine, so I jumped ship into medicine, um, and uh, then. You know, I spent the best part of 12 years at uni. And during that time, I um, really, uh, tr- I, I did my best to um, be an elite athlete. And, you know, I sort of got to the point where I was winning a couple of races and I was making it, uh, you know, what even a good blue thing for now. So managed to be, you know, have a couple of years where I made more than $100,000 a year through sport, which, to be honest, I was blown away. You know, I, I never anticipated doing that. So I had this sort of um, unexpected uh, sidelight career as a professional triathlete, and it took me all around the world, which was just absolutely phenomenal. You know, I, especially now in the in the post-COVID world or the COVID world, um, the thought of travelling internationally three or four times a year for sport for yeah for twelve years, like I probably did you know fifty trips, and that was uh, exceptional. As a as a full time student, so marrying up the two was difficult, and then um, but it was all sort of on this pathway to becoming what I am now, which is a you know a, someone who has a very very deep background in um, exercise science in elite sports, uh, and uh, you know at my practice as a as a sports medical doctor where I also do some physiotherapy and rehab, so I sort of had this broad background which is sort of lets me play around with bikes and bike fits and uh, ruptured Achilles and I help in, in surgery um, with mainly foot and ankle a day a week uh, after having done 10 years of helping in an upper limb theatre. So I guess, you know, on, on the jack of all trades when it comes to sports medicine. Love it. I love it. And that my experience with Mitch, I must give his... Uh, give his uh, practice a bit of a plug at Shinbone, Shinbone Medical in North Melbourne, and he's in St Kilda as well. But brilliant, absolutely brilliant. So that's a side note. But um, I'm good. I'm going all right. <laughs> it's very slow, <laughs> slow recovery from Achilles, but I'm going all right. So um, now, tell just just for the listeners, I guess this is not a normal um, discussion that we would have in regards to you know speaking to an elite athlete. So can you give me a bit of an idea and give me the distances for an Ironman? Um, and what sort of ridiculous uh, distances are each um, leg of the event? Yeah, so look, uh, oh, Ironman is a 3.8-kilometre swim, um, which is initially based on the um, Honolulu Open Water um, Swim Classic, which is, you know, in the States, is uh, I think it's 2.2 miles. Um, and, uh, in fact, the whole sport was, was set up by... Um, a retired Navy guy um, who wanted to see who the fittest athletes were. So he, he married up the open water swim, um, the uh, round, um, uh, now that's the island of Oahu, not the actual island of, uh, island of um, Hawaii, which is, you know, the, the big island, Kona. Um, the group of islands, obviously, is called the Hawaiian Islands, blah, blah. Anyway, um, so the... the, the, the to circumnavigate the island of uh, Oahu, it's um, 
180 kilometres. And then um, the run is the Honolulu Marathon, so 42.2 Ks, 26.2 miles. So uh, they put that all together back in the late 70s, I think it was 1978, and um, that's been going on for oh, almost oh, more than 35 years now. And it's it's the World Championship event, and I um, I was lucky enough to qualify uh, twice as an amateur and six times as a professional. And not finishing the first time was actually my probably the most imp- important um, catalyst for my professional career. That I went and raced as an age grouper with a very good friend of mine, um, Damien Angus, who you know had, had a, an amazing race there. And you know my parents came over to watch me, and it was this big hullabaloo. And I didn't finish. Um, I was coughing up blood on the run, and I'd been quite unwell on the lead in. So that that really uh, catalyzed the reaction in me to become, um, you know, a much better Ironman triathlete. Um, I worked harder at it. I studied harder at uh, uni and uh, in and around science, and that really helped me to um, to improve my performance and win my age group the next time I went in 2002. Right. And so, how old were you at that point? Uh, so I was 27 when I won my age group in Hawaii, um, and at that point I decided I'd turn professional, yep. um, which you know was pretty pretty amazing experience. Um, the next two times that I went back, I had probably my best two races in 2004 and 2005, uh, where I finished 11th and 4, 14th overall. And you know, like, I'm just some, and it, this sort of plays into my you know, thoughts about imposter syndrome that, you know, I got off the bike in fifth overall and here I am, uh, you know, running out for lava field in a position that I never, never thought that I would be interested in uh, or able to get. Um, and unfortunately got tipped for the top 10, which is, um, you know, with a mile to go. But that was, <laughs> it's, it's certainly unimportant now. And it was important then, relatively unimportant now because just the experience of, of performing, you know, at a world class level was 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 worth its weight in gold. I'm I'm interested to to go back just a little bit though. When you said about you're coughing up blood and you felt how far did you get into the race? And then did you think oh, I'm not I'm not cut out for this? I'm not going to be able to do this again. Was there any thoughts of that after you failed the first time to finish? Oh no, I love it. <laughs> so look, you know. Um, I'm sure everyone can um, associate with this that, uh, you know, their parents are certainly, uh, uh, you know, the most important um, members of um, the, the, their family in terms of upbringing. And my parents were very stoic, um, very um, uh, authoritarian, um, uh, strict Anglican. Um, so, you know, they were and remain deeply religious people and, um, uh, you know, church was uh, obligatory, mandatory. Yep. Um, so, uh, yeah, it was just, you know, and what my mum said goes, went, still does actually, still the matriarch. So, you know, she sort of brought us up to be, well, if you, first you don't succeed, um, you know, try again. And I still remember vividly my old man used to... Um, um, Pretend to be um, uh, Prime Minister um, in the Second World War uh, in the UK. Um, Winston Churchill. Oh, come on, help me, Churchill. Where he, you know, he had a great speech where he sat down and stood up and said, "Never give up." Yeah. Um, 
a number of times. And I think, you know, that that led us, all three of us boys to be, my two brothers, one older, one younger, to be extremely determined, um, almost to the point of being dogmatic, to be honest. (laughs) You probably need that to be able to... uh, to run 42 k's after you've just ridden and and swum for a stupid oh, distance as definitely. well. Definitely. Definitely. Yeah, and I know we're going to talk about um, the cycling world record, but essentially, you know, I think it, in life, um, if, you're sort of, if you're the sort of person who quits, well, you know, that's a choice. And, uh, you know, I guess, um, you know, we, we could have been quitters, but um turns out that, you know, mum and dad brought us up to be um, extremely determined. And I think, you know, part of your genetic makeup is, is set in stone and part of it's trainable. And I think we just ended up with both, you know, that they really trained us to be determined and genetically we're also quite determined. I love it. So uh, we're going to talk, we are going to talk about your 12 and 24 hour a little bit later on. But so at this point in time, you're, you know, you, you turned professional for a while, you are, um, almost like the world at your feet. Everything's going well. You're fit. You're healthy. Um, but I, I do remember reading somewhere or, or hearing somewhere that when you turned professional, it wasn't um, it wasn't the love of your life. You were juggling school and stuff, and then you went on to become a professional for a little while. Uh, but it, you didn't really enjoy it as much. Is that right? Well, or to do so it full time. When I turned a full a full time professional, uh, which was in two thousand and um, Eight. Uh, so I, I finished my medicine in 2006, did my internship in 2007, and I decided that I would then um, go full-time in 2008. It's just that, you know, the, the thing that I, I feel most fulfilled in my life when I'm, um, when I'm juggling and, you know, transitioning from one thing to the next to the next. And yeah. uh, there was so much downtime and also so much mental fatigue in being a professional. You know, training between 25 and 35 hours a week is physically and mentally training. And I enjoyed the physical fatigue, but I didn't enjoy the mental fatigue so much. So um, it was at that juncture, you know, I was married um, uh, to my first wife and she and I were both trying to be professional athletes. And and also we had diametrically opposite um, attitudes to, to sport. You know, mine was that I was really in it to make a stepwise progression and build, you know, one thing on the other. And I, I was always pleasantly surprised when I, you know, went up to the next stage or the next level. Um, uh, for instance, you know, I, I'd always dreamt of winning an Ironman. And when I did in 2005, it wasn't, um, you know, it hadn't been a dream for uh, two decades. It had been a dream for a year because... You know, before that, it was a dream to go top five. And before yeah. that, it was a dream to go to finish the race. So, yeah, I had a stepwise attitude, whereas, you know, she really wanted to, she had, a, the, you know, the world champion attitude where all she wanted to do in life was to win an Olympic gold medal or a world championship. And that puts a lot of pressure on <laughs> performance and also leads to a lot of disappointment. So, yeah. yeah, look, I was never disappointed with my professional career. It was always, like I said, a... Um, a pleasant surprise that I was able to achieve at such a high level. Yeah, love it. So you mentioned that you like juggling everything. So you're, you're you know, just before you went full-time, I guess you're studying, um, studying flat out, but you're also training like like almost full-time as well. Um, tell me, tell me, 
how many you mentioned 25 to 30 hours a week and i bet you you were doing a fair bit of that before you went full-time athlete how did you juggle that like what time are you getting up in the morning to go for rides and runs and how do you juggle all that at that point in time well i think uh, <laughs> that's the old adage that um if you want something done ask a busy person yeah. um that you know you just yeah, if you're if you're busy, then you work out a way to make it fit. And I wasn't. Um, I was quite. I had an attitude that that was um, quite realistic about my training. So, you know, I, I was uh, an excellent biker, a very good runner, and a good swimmer. Um, you know, in that order. And so, um, if I really had wanted to be a true professional then you have to work on your weaknesses. And uh, I recognised quite early that, well, you know, I could only, I had a window to achieve in, in triathlon um, while I was studying at uni and potentially for a few years after, but that my university was going to, what was going to sustain me for the rest of my life. And, um, you know, I didn't have that short-term thinking or, you know, I guess university is, is, Understanding and being able to um, to delay gratification. So, you know, realistically, while you're studying at uni, it's, it's difficult, and you know, you have there's not much money and there's not much time, and yeah, there's, there's, a, there's a lot of work. Um, but you know that you're going to get rewarded for the 30 years after your degree. And I guess again, my parents had instilled in me that that was very important. So, I was, I was never going to become just a full-time athlete and. So realistically, then I didn't spend the requisite time to improve my swimming um, at the expense of either study or the other two legs because, uh, yeah, I, I was being realistic about my triathlon career. So, gotcha. yeah, I, I, I fitted it in um, when I could in between gaps, and also the last, you know, the last thing I did was work out what I did and didn't need to study. So, you know, in medicine, the sky's the limit. There's always things you can learn that you don't know. And I guess um, to pass exams, we have to know the main stuff. So, you know, realistically, I tried to learn the main stuff so that I'd get through my exams and then I could, you know, in my later in my career, I'd learn the minutiae of the, the thing I was really interested in. Yep. So you just balanced it out. So you didn't go too hard on either one thing. Well, no. I mean, I think, uh, well, no, I went really hard on the On both. <laughs> <laughs> And look, I think this sort of contributed to, or one of the contributing factors to my um, my marriage breakdown was um, that you know when you have two high performance um, people, you know my, my ex wife was a doctor as well, um, wow. then I think you know some, something's got to give, and you know you've got to work out that there's a hierarchy of what's important, and it's incredibly difficult to have to be, a, or it's also incredibly selfish to be a professional athlete. So, you know, I I spent a lot of time training um, and I spent a lot of time studying and there's not a lot of, a lot of time left over for the, for the person that you love. So, um, you know, I think that can be a, be a bit of a wedge and you see lots of elite athletes who end up in divorces um, partly because of the party lifestyle and it certainly wasn't, you know, all my party time was being spent at uni. And yeah. then um, realistically, yeah, I was... Uh, I was as, atten as attentive to my marriage as I could be um, in the confines of 
of what I'd bitten off. And yeah, it's, um, it was always interesting, actually. Um, my ex-wife has always said about me that, that I've led a sheltered life. And she she actually was incredibly prescient about that. But, you know, until I got divorced, I was, I was just, I was living the dream. You know, I had great parents. I was going to a, luckily gone to a private school and had a scholarship and, you know, got to study all these 12 years at uni and, yeah, you know, won an Ironman. I was achieving a sport that I never anticipated I would. And, yeah, until until I got divorced, you know, I, I really, which was in 2009, like my life was, I, I was untouchable. You know, I was Teflon. Yeah, <laughs> was everything would just slide off. All good. But that's everything an interesting... Everything would just slide off and it was, yeah. I was just going to say that's an interesting thing though because sometimes and, and you felt that but other people looking at you would have thought that as well you know sometimes we look at other people and think their life is so perfect I mean I would have I would have watched you if I was a mate of yours going through that period of time being like, oh far out look at Mitch he's got the world the world at his feet he's good at everything he's smart he can do all the um, all the fitness stuff he's you know he's an iron man makes me sick right and so that everyone would look at you and think it's all amazing but then we spoke uh, the other day about it and today as well about the impact of your marriage breakdown was significant and significant for a number of years after. And so if we can switch gears a little bit, I'd love to for you to give a bit of insight into um, the depression um, that that you've dealt with um, over the course of, you know, from that marriage breakdown onwards. Because sometimes even people listening on here will go, oh, mate, world at his feet, everything's great. But we never know what's behind the curtain in other people's lives. So can you give us a bit of an insight of, of that experience and how it's progressed, I guess, over the last few years? Yeah, look, I mean, so I think the thing that was going on in the background in my life was that, you know, my my ex-wife was expressing her dissatisfaction in, well, herself and also to an extent in our marriage by um, yeah, through infidelity. and. Those infidelities um, weren't a one-off, and and so it's it's very difficult to trust your partner, be satisfied in your marriage um, uh, when when there's infidelity playing a role, and I and uh, you know the it's the ultimate um, contradiction to to the vows that you've you've promised each other, and so I guess I was. Um, you know, I had trouble um, coping with that while I was still married to um, to that person, and also, you know, it had the veneer of this Teflon that, yeah. you know, it wasn't something that I was uh, I was really I, I shared it with a few people, but I didn't also want to sully um, my close friendships and the relationships I had with my partner at the time um, by by oversharing that stuff because. Yeah, it, it impacts the way they would then um, behave towards her, and I, and I was hoping to save the marriage. So um, all that really led me to invest in a relationship that wasn't um, uh, didn't have reciprocity. Yeah. And so when my marriage failed, and uh, as I've already you know told you that you know I, the ethos that I had from my parents was that you know he got married once and he did that in the eyes of God and. And that was it, you know, you, and you made it work, um, rain, hail, or shine. Uh, and so I'd really, um, I'd, I was committed despite the, the shortcomings. And I know that everyone commits despite shortcomings in marriage. It's just that um, the failings in my marriage were um, fatal for, for, the, for the marriage. And 
accepting that took me a long time, even after the uh, uh, my wife had asked me for a divorce, and uh, it took probably four or five years of I saw at least five psychologists, um, and you know I had all the symptoms of depression, um, and despite being a doctor. <laughs> I was uh, I was also a very good actor and very good at hiding them. You know, I was uh, crying with for no reason. I was crying multiple times a day. I would cry during training. Um, I wasn't sleeping very well. Um, I couldn't hold a new relationship. Um, uh, I was amb- I just basically was I was ambivalent about my life. Um, and I guess none of that uh, again because I was you know I really was um, there trying to still pursue a career as a triathlete and a doctor and almost, um, you know, to, to, to spite the, um, my ex-partner, you know, to have success is the best form of um, um, recovery. But I was finding it incredibly dissatisfying and I, and I just couldn't unlock why I, why, I was, why I was unhappy in my life. And it took a psychiatrist by the name of Jeff Thompson, who I was referred to by a good friend of mine, um, who's also a psychiatrist, Adam Deacon, and he specialises in PTSD. And, you know, I guess PTSD can, post-traumatic stress disorder, can really strike, you know, he he sees a lot of returned servicemen. But, you know, mine really was traumatic. My divorce was traumatic enough to give me a reactive depression um, that took me... Uh, well, the best part of a decade to get over. Um, uh, and, you know, his help um, in getting me back on my feet was absolutely critical. And it also then unlocked me being able to um, admit, admit my shortcomings and failings and um, my and, and to stop being deceptive to the people who were close to me um, with regards to um, my feelings. I was able to share with, people, with, with them much better and now, you know, it's, it's a critical part of my medical career is uh, identifying people with um, mental illness and, and actually engaging them in a discussion about it in the way that I have just with you now. But, uh, you know, it, it takes some courage to share that you need help. And, you know, I was in denial for, for many years that I needed help. And also that uh, the denial about um, needing medication to improve your mental health too. And, you know, I still use some um, antidepressant now to um, keep myself in, <laughs> you know, in, in good mental shape and see my psychiatrist. Um, in fact, I'm seeing him today. I've got a, a Zoom appointment. Um, so realistically, I think it, it's just that taboo around sharing with others. And that actually, it also impacts on your ability to to allow yourself to express your, your depression and your dissatisfaction in your life because it's it's normal to have some of that, yeah. not depression and suicidal thoughts and um, to that extent, but certainly, you know, dissatisfaction is is a is a normal part of your life. But did um, you did you, you know, what did you find most hard about actually accepting that you had depression and talking to people about it, talking to someone about it? What was the hardest part about accepting that emotionally for you? Well, it's a good question. I, I think, and I sort of, you know, I, I, I just touched on it before that everything that I tried in my life, I succeeded at. Yep. And, you know, the um, sport, uni, I had lots of friends, uh, you know, bought a house or a flat and 
Like everything that I'd touched, it, I, you know, I felt like I had the minus touch. Yeah. And in part, I had the minus touch because I was a hard worker. And it was a real shock to me that my relationship didn't work out because it wasn't through lack of hard work. It was just that it's an intangible. Love is, um, you know, it's, it's not something you can force, not something you can improve mm. um, or fix by hard work if the other party isn't willing. And, you know, that, that to me was that the, the hardest thing to accept was that actually I tried really hard at something and it hadn't worked. Yeah. And it was a sort of first, you know, first major thing that had happened in my life. And I, and I know that I'm contradicting myself that, you know, I, I'm not finished an Ironman race, but this is a whole different level. There's always other Ironman races, whereas in my mind, there was only ever one marriage. And so that failing or not not ending in what I'd hoped for, which was, you know, a long-term commitment with children and or a lifelong commitment, um, you know, all the hallmarks of um, what I think a successful life are, which is having a family and, um, you know, teaching your, your, your children the ethics that you've been taught. And I think, yeah, the... The, the loss of that or the yeah the, the loss of trajectory of that I found just catastrophic to, to deal with and you know it really really it, it took me uh, years of, <laughs> of therapy to even even to be able to um, uh, I guess eloquently um, talk about that as, as and, and that that was the most important um, uh, issue of of my death, yeah, my depression, I guess. Isn't it, it's interesting to me, I have one more question about it, but it's interesting to me something that you mentioned there, that you determine success in life, you know, getting married, having kids, and that, that I just think, find it interesting as someone who is an elite athlete, that that stuff is even still more important, or it seemed to be with what you said, than all of the accolades you can get in a sporting sense. It's, it's life, sport is not, is a part of life, not the whole life. Is that fair to say? Absolutely. I mean, yeah, it, it would be a, a very hollow life if, if really what we got the best or they got the most out of was success on the sporting field. I mean, yeah, sure, you can, you can invest and uh, emotionally invest and really try and achieve. But if you don't, if you don't have a win, well, it's always next week. Yeah, Whereas exactly. I think, yeah, the... Oh, you know, that, that adage to where people say, well, you just don't know what it's like until you've had kids. But it's incredibly true that, yeah. you know, it's, it's the hardest and most satisfying thing you can ever do in your life. Um, probably right up there with having a marriage that works. Um, <laughs> but, yeah, it's just, yeah, you know, and, and a, a mate of mine who's a French masseur puts this really nicely that he says, this is the way that you can be, um, uh, you know, you can live forever. It's, and it's through your children, and you, and he's and he's right. Genetically, this is the only opportunity you have to be immortal, yeah. and um, you know you've you've got to do it. It's 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 the best part of life. Yeah, love it, love it. So so you mentioned about suicidal thoughts. I want one question on that is is that where it got to for you? Did it get that bad? Was it that horrible and dark for you at that point in time? Yeah, look, it was. Um, I guess it, it, it's a way to end suffering. Um, yep. You know, you're looking for constantly looking for ways to, to end your suffering. And you know, if I'm having a bad day now, well, I have another cup of coffee. Yep. It makes me feel good. Um, whereas 
you know, the, the, the difficulty about depression, which you know is what they call anhedonia, which is just you know the, the opposite of hedonism, which is that the simple things in life don't give you pleasure, and so you're constantly looking for, for ways to get pleasure, which you know in depression is to not suffer. And so, and the list of, th- of doing that is it's very few. So you know, I I use some sleeping tablets from time to time because you know I wasn't suffering when I was sleeping. Drank a bit too much because um, you know again that would help me to sleep, and I wasn't suffering while I was um, had some mild intoxication. Um, and uh, yeah, so I guess uh, yeah that that's a um, suicidal um, thought is pathological. No, it's, it's it's a definition of pathological, but I've just, in fact, it really dovetails nicely to what we just spoke about, which is that, you know, here we are, we all want to be immortal, you know, by having children and, and we all want to live as long as we can so we can see our children grow up. And so the the dichotomy is wanting to kill yourself. I mean, and, and it's, it's just not what we're programmed for. So there's a corruption in the program if you're thinking about suicide and Again, you just need that explained to you once and it never leaves you that, you know, that was part of what made me accept that I was deeply depressed is that is understanding and um, being able to synthesize that it's, it's a corruption in the program. Yeah. I'm going to fix that program or <laughs> work on that program. <laughs> so, all right. So let's jump yeah. off that. Let's jump off that for a sec. And I want to just quickly talk about your 12 and 24 hour rides, which are complete and utter madness. So, and how did, I want to understand how you got to that point, right? So you've gone through this experience and continue to go through it, but obviously at a lesser degree than where you were. And you, you wake up one day and you go, I think I want to ride all day for 12 hours and see how many kilometers I can get. And then I'll back that up, you know, a year later or whatever it was and just ride for 24 hours. What were you thinking? Like it's complete madness. Everyone will have heard of the awesome Fawson. Yep. And uh, the Drew Jin, who is one of the awesome Fawson um, for their second, third, and fourth gold medal. Well, anyway, he, he won three Olympic gold medals. And he um, he had a try at the 24-hour world record. And, you know, at this, at this time, you know, I was, I was sort of let sports, not lapse, but I was still doing some bits and pieces in triathlon. But I saw him do that, and I was just... And he didn't get the record. He, you know, he sort of missed it by. He got 825k's in 24 hours. And I thought, oh, gee, he wasn't that organised. And oh, he could have done this better. He could have done that better. And before I knew it, I had set myself the goal of doing a nine-hour um, track challenge to see what I could hold for for nine hours. And you know, if that could then get me the 12-hour world record as a stepping stone to the 24-hour world record. Um, you know, to have a go at what he's had a go at. And, yeah, I, I guess, you know, I, I, I um, took what you now know from me is a um, my usual stepwise um, progression where I thought, right, I'm going to have a go at this first, then that'll lead into the next one and to the next one. And that allowed me then to, I guess, cultivate my team, which I needed around me. Um, uh, also do some specific training around um, cycling which I hadn't really done before in my, um, uh, well, I've never done one sport before I'd, I'd, or one discipline. I'd done three disciplines. So, you know, suddenly I had this great mindset that was back. You know, I, I was taking some medication. Uh, um, I was uh, engaged to 
to marry Ethne, my wife. Um, you know, life was coming along nicely again. And I think that's the other hallmark of elite sport is that you, you cannot perform on the field. And we've all seen this. If things are going to toilet in the uh, in the background of your life, and it's what happened to me late in my triathlon career, and it's what happened happens constantly. You see it all the time. People combusting, Ben Cousins, all that sort of stuff. Yeah. So, you know, here I was. I was I was in my early forties, and I thought I have another chance here to be truly exceptional at something. And I'm going to give it a go. Um, so yeah, I I managed to. Um, set up this 12-hour world record attempt um, down at Port Melbourne and ran a Criterium circuit and averaged 42k an hour, which you know is. I think I, I think I got to 42k once on the bike. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know that's what I used to average for the bike leg on my very best days for 180k. Yeah. And so you know it was it was still going to be a stretch for me to be able to average it for um to. 500 k's, which was my my goal, and look, I found that just it was horrific. It was a you know the first I picked a perfect day. I was really lucky, and you know it, you know part of the skill of this event is picking. You got to pick the right season. Can't be too cold. Can't be too hot. Has to be still. And I picked this perfect day, and then in conjunction with that, I had a great leg day. You know, like you have these days where you, you know things are just easy and I think that's the thing that I love about cycling you know more than any other sport is that I, I have these days where I just feel indefatigable I feel like I, I just could ride forever and I had one of those days um, and so on that day yeah I, I had eight hours where things were going just beautifully and then suddenly I realised this is effing hard like I don't know that I can finish this and I'll, but I was bonded to finishing. You know, I had I was raising money for the uh, family of a friend of mine who died after an operation, and the family was there, and everyone was there to see me get this world record. And I and I, I honestly thought I don't know if I can do this. And the pain was just was far in excess of what I ever thought it would be, and in far in excess of what I had ever felt before in sport. So, um, you know, it it really sat me down on the seat of my pants. Um, you know, pardon the pun, um, when I finished that, you know, I, I, I knew I'd had to finish and I had this incredible pain and I, I went to a really dark place. So, um, you know, it was at that point I made a, a foolhardy statement that, you know, that I would never have a crack at the 24 hour, but, you know, <laughs> sure enough, long. like a, like a woman who's just had a baby, yeah. <laughs> and I'm never doing that again. They forget. Uh, after you've, yeah, you, you soon forget. Because you know what's left of the memories of the teamwork and um, you know being able to excel physically, and so I just you know I convinced my my new wife who was pregnant at the time that right just one more thing and then I'm then I'm done. Sound like Rocky Balboa coming back? I've got a little bit of fire in the basement, you know. I've got something. (laughs) I've got to go again. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, I think it's more you know Danny in Ocean's Eleven just saying it's just one more job. Come on, (laughs) you know you want to. so, you know, like that ended up being really, you know, the cherry on top for my professional career was, uh, um, you know, as a 43-year-old um, in March of 2018 was doing the 24-hour world record. And, you know, it took an inc- – the thing that I noted about Drew's attempt um, was quite correct that 
it, it actually is a logistical as you know that's part of, a, of achieving a world record in endurance cycling is having your logistics, your planning, um, everything has to go to script. You have to be able to um, also when it does go bad because things always go wrong, you have to be able to calmly, slightly change tack, come up with a solution and keep going. And you know, I guess again folding in the uh, psychology or psychiatry, I've um, you know, despite being completely in remission from my depression, I'd actually kept going back to Jeff on a monthly basis to talk about how I was going to cope with this next world record attempt. And you know, mentally it was a lot easier, and, and physically I wouldn't say easier, but tolerable um, compared to the twelve hour because you know I was so much better prepared, and it's what made you know. It, experience creates opportunities for success, and without the experience of the nine or twelve hours, I never would have achieved the twenty-four hour world record. I needed to have um, had that stepwise approach that I've used, you know, um, throughout my um, sporting and also academic career. That you just you do one step at a time. You get you excel at that, and then you move on to the next level. <laughs> And kids, it's like computer games, <laughs> only a bit different. <laughs> One level at a yeah, time. So, <laughs> so look, uh, I guess, like I said, it was the exclamation point that I've that I was. I can't believe how lucky I was to get my mental um, health to a point while my physical self was still at an elite level, and you know, capitalise on it. It was it, it, it's incredibly satisfying. But it, uh, you know, I see it. I don't look back and think, oh well. You know, I don't wake up every morning, look in the mirror and think, ah, I'm a world record holder, I'm the man. Um, you know, it's just more like, oh, that was a great experience and, you know, another hallmark of hard work and what's next? You know, yeah. not not uh, not resting on my laurels by any stretch. I just, um, you know, I want to achieve other things in other areas. And, you know, you probably, you, you may or may not have read that in in an article that I wrote after 12, 24 hours that, you know, I want to get some still trying to become a bit of photographer I'm trying to become a uh, become an avid collector of vinyl and um, obviously an avid collector of children having you know I've got two kids and uh, the wife and I want another one and yeah we're, you know it's, it's just on to the next thing and I think yeah it's, it's doing your best and, and then being able to move on which is the hallmark of, um, of, of a good life I think I think something that I did hear is that you said it's not so much about, you mentioned just then, it's not about me going around and saying, I'm the world record holder, look at me, I'm amazing. It's about the journey and the, the memories that you've created by going out to deliberately achieve things. And, and whether that is collecting vinyls or becoming a better photographer, it's about the journey and about progression. And it's progression that makes us happy. It's not the end, like when you when you win the Ironman, you know, that, that joy lasts for a little while, but it's not that's not what we hold on to. It's the memories on the journey, on the training, on all that sort of stuff along the way. And so I think... Um, you know, Mitch, I could talk to you for hours, but neither of us have the time to be able to do that. But I, I want to say a huge thank you for just coming on and sharing, you know, part of your story um, in regards to, you know, what you went through. And if you want to, if you want to see a bit more detail about what he went through, there's a great video on his website on Shimbo Medical, um, where you can actually see a bit more of the 24-hour experience. And I won't, <clears throat> I won't go into detail, but. Um, just imagine uh, the pain of it. Uh, I could only imagine, just imagine sitting on a bike for two hours, let alone 24 and the damage that that might do. <laughs> but, but I think it's important to, um, keep things into perspective. You know, you're an elite athlete, but life is more than just sport. And, 
and we don't understand what's going on behind uh, behind the curtain sometimes of what people are experiencing and you've given a great insight into that today and um, I guess that the the one thing that I do want to mention um, was the determination that you had to just keep going and and you mentioned the thing the reason that I wanted to interview was on the, the one thing that we didn't mention was when you said to me at our last appointment you were talking about some of the training that you did and one day you got up at 10 o'clock 11 p.m to go and ride between North Melbourne and Frankston a bunch of times not just once a bunch of times which i thought was hilarious to sit to push your body into that place where it needed to go and i think if we want to achieve um unbelievable things or we want to get better just in simple things in life we've got to have the determination to to chase it and consistently work at it um every single day and i think you're a great example of that mitch so um is there anything else that you'd want to share just to finish or no look actually you know what I'm uh, I'm late for a meeting with my psychiatrist. <laughs> I love it. So I'll let you go and do that. So I want to say a huge no, no, thanks. I really appreciate it. I do appreciate the opportunity. And look, you know, I think um, if if I could get anyone to to take a message home today, that um, you know, if you do have uh, what you think might be depression, talk to someone, ring a ring Lifeline, um, go and see your GP. Just don't. Don't sit in the mire. For, don't don't waste another minute of your life. Go and talk to someone about it because realistically, um, you know, you only got one one shot at it. So just uh, go and get some help, and you'll enjoy your life a lot more. You're a legend. Thanks very much, Mitch, and thanks everyone right. for listening. No um, you go, Mitch, and we'll talk soon. But um, thanks everyone for listening, and uh, yeah. and I think that's great advice from Mitch. Is go and get some. Go and talk to someone if you're struggling. Um, it's probably the best thing that you can do. So once again, thanks for listening to my podcast. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did um, in hearing um, Mitch's story. Um, and there's always something that we can uh, take out of somebody else's story. And, and just understanding that other people are going through tough times as well is really important. Have an amazing day. Make sure you subscribe um, and continue to listen to the next installments that come about. We'll talk soon, guys.